Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. To say that something has no therapeutic value, and I know the main—it almost says you haven't studied it. Right, exactly. It's like, well, like cigarettes technically have therapeutic value to people who are schizophrenic. Um, Like there are, you know, it's it's just it's uh, it's just a flawed (laughs) way of thinking. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, I'd like to see all of that overhaul. But yeah, until cannabis and psilocybin and and the other other psychedelics until they're rescheduled, you know, it's all sort of the same old thing. All of these um, companies that interact with the feds can throw their hands up in the air and say, well, there's nothing we can do. Sorry, figure it out. And um, that's just, right. just bogus. Well, and what's odd to me, and I'm sure you can comment on this yourself, is that uh, like right now I can get on Facebook. I brought this up before in the past on episodes, but I can get on Facebook right now and I can legally get a telehealth appointment with a doctor. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I'll have MDMA in my friggin' mailbox. And that's okay because of the scheduling. But yet you can't get mushrooms. (laughs) Yeah, and I know MDMA, right. as far as like the research I've done, MDMA isn't necessarily um, like it's it's beneficial, but not like psilocybin or other psychedelics in the sense that it's it works for a long period. And then, you know what I mean? You may need another yeah, it's, session, it's but, it's, but you're talking months yeah. or years, whereas mm-hmm. MDMA, it seems like it's one of those like uh, antidepressants where you just have to take it all the time. Well, it's, it's just, just it's a never ending um, it just does such different things in the brain. Like MDMA has some really great potential for so really interesting use of MDMA that I like and have learned a bit about is um, so back in the eighties, you know, it was used commonly in marriage counseling, not commonly used, but it was used in marriage counseling to help couples um, speak more honestly to each other, et cetera. Um, For anyone listening, didn't know that 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 was the case before MDMA was made illegal. And um, there's an interesting um, therapy that could be done with uh, people with PTSD and severe depression and things where you kind of facilitate a meeting of the fractured psyche. And so instead of having two people in a relationship that are having trouble getting along, you have sort of like different parts of your psyche that have trouble getting along. And there's one thing that's very powerful is speaking to your other selves that have been compartmentalized in your brain. And this is something I've done in my own therapy, which is why I know about it and and talk about it, you know, um, 
I experienced all sorts of things growing up that led to all sorts of issues, PTSD and other issues. And, um, one thing that's extremely powerful is address like one acknowledging that like, there's a part of myself that stopped developing and is like still in my brain somewhere scared and like not knowing what to do and everything. And then there's this other part of me that sort of moved on and hid that part and just pretended that person didn't exist and kind of rebuilt on top of it. And so going back and being able to like speak to your eight year old, 13 year old, 17 year old, 24 year old self, whatever, and reconcile your fractured psyche, um, that can be very, very powerful long-term and MDMA is really good at helping with that. But you're right, like there's, um, they affect the brain very, very differently and MDMA tends to not have as strong of a, uh, like psilocybin can sort of grab you by the soul and shock you um right right for six months <laughs> yeah whereas mdma doesn't really do that it just sort of mm -hmm. uh, um lowers your boundaries and helps you feel comfortable in the world and there's a lot of you know progress you can make in that state um but it is sure, sure. very very different um like you said and yeah well, people tend to take mdma more frequently than they would ever take psilocybin or dmt or lsd or anything like that Sure. And, and I don't, to be clear, I don't want to be talking down to MDMA or anything like that. No, no, I, I absolutely. It's it different. And it, yeah. And, and let me, uh, let me, uh, be clear too. I think I was a little confused. There's also another disassociative that you've actually experimented with. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, ketamine. uh, you'll have to remind ketamine. Thank you. Yes. That's the other one. So ketamine, I can go right on Facebook and even easier than MDMA. I can find ketamine like that. Oh yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah. legally, you know, mm -hmm. get, get my telehealth appointment and I'll have ketamine in a week. And again, it goes back to it's ketamine is so fucking readily available to the general public over, yeah. over the computer. Yeah. But yet psilocybin yeah. and cannabis, all this other stuff is treated so oddly. I'm like, it, it's so weird. And I think it goes back to scheduling because I do believe that ketamine is scheduled differently. Oh, very much. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But but again, getting back to the action of the drug, again, I've seen all these people on ketamine and they seem to have positive outcomes as long as they stay on those small doses of ketamine. Yeah, my, my experience with ketamine is really interesting. Um, I have a direct connection to this because my, my dad has treatment-resistant depression and PTSD and um, gets regular ketamine infusions um, and things like that. So I'm connected to it that way and then I've sort of got my own connection to it as well. And, um, yeah, ketamine almost, you know, psilocybin is coming this way too with the micro dosing. Um, ketamine is one of these things that, uh, kind of like some other psychedelics, you kind of have different classes of users. Like you have some people that want the big macro doses, and then you have other people that are kind of going for lighter experiences more frequently. And, um, I would, you know, I, the lower doses of ketamine, I don't find very interesting. I can understand why they're fun in a party context. Um, but I don't find them very interesting from a therapeutic context. And when I say low doses, this is very subjective because already when we're talking about like doses that'll send you to a K hole, that's already a low dose compared to what you would receive to knock you out for surgery or something. 
Um, right. So it's right. just important to note as I'm talking about doses, you know, all of this is relative, but you know, these kind of micro doses um, that are used more recreationally, I don't find that so interesting, but the higher doses that tend to, you know, that you have to lay down for and because you can't yeah. move. Um, right. Uh, well, right. It's becoming those, a disassociative at that point. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the dissociative thing is it's really interesting. That term to be used to describe ketamine that was invented by the wife of one of the researchers that invented ketamine. And they were trying to figure out how to describe its effects so that it wouldn't freak people out and would be um, more likely to be accepted as a commercial product. And so this idea of a dissociative was like a, a better way to describe the state of being than a lot of other ways that they came up with describing it. But I find that it's a, it's almost a misnomer because you, you disconnect from your body in that, like you can't feel your body anymore, but you're still conscious. Um, and you, you maintain awareness unless you take too much ketamine and do completely, um, you know, go under, but, um, these doses that are used for infusions and like the lozenges that you're, you're talking about things that you can get online. Um, some of those slightly heavier doses, um, you know, I'll, I'll just talk about my experience. Um, cause that's, that's really what I can speak to most directly. You know, other people have their own experiences, but for me going back to 2020, um, I was in one of the worst depressions I had been in since, um, I was in my early twenties when I first learned that I had a problem with depression. Um, that was the first time I ever experienced like suicidal ideation or anything. And so 2020 was a terrible year and, um, I was in one of the worst situations with my mental health that I'd been in, um, since, you know, that time. And, um, so I decided to try ketamine and see what it could do, um, what the experience would be like, figured it wouldn't hurt anything <laughs> and uh, with the situation I was in. And so I did it proper. You know, I was laid down, comfortable, um, eye shades on, uh, listening to, you know, soundscape music, but no words. So there's no, nothing suggestive, um, nothing for my brain to have to really make sense of, you know? And, um, I took, I think it was 150 to 200 milligrams. And for me, you know, you first get these sensations that are kind of typical when people describe ketamine, like you get this sort of numb fuzziness feeling. And that's often when people are doing the more micro doses, that's what they're going for is to get that little bit of buzz and numbing and, you know, and everything. Um, but then, you know, you cruise right past that. If you take 200 milligrams, you will cruise right past, um, <laughs> the numbness phase. And, um, and it, it took about 15 minutes or so. Um, but eventually I had no more sensation. Like there was no sensory input coming from my body anymore. I was just in a void and rather than having sort of a lack of experience, which some people describe the cable as being just complete, utter void of nothing. Um, for me, once I got to the void of nothing, 
that void started to be filled with um, a lot of different things. I mean, I had a very strong visionary experience. Um, and it was, I mean, it was interesting. I've, I haven't talked about it publicly, um, but it was, it started out as once I disconnected from my body, there was like this feeling that someone was communicating with me and just sending the message like, everything's fine. Don't worry. Like, just keep moving along. Um, we've got some stuff to show you. I'm like, cool. And um, what followed is one of the most bizarre things I've ever experienced in my life because I was able, my daughter was two at the time. I was able to see her age from two years old all the way to her death and um, like accelerated very, very quickly. And the whole time I'm like being comforted by this like thing that was there with me. And um, after that, there was like the strange, like sort of out of the void, the strange sort of like light ribbon that sort of came out and wrapped around me and just hugged me really tight. And it was just like pure, like love, just everything's okay, everything's fine. And um, that like dancing ribbon would eventually sort of change form into my wife and I could like see her. And then it was like, I then zoomed way far out and it was almost like I was hovering over a universe or something. And this sort of helper that I felt was with me in this experience was like, look how you're connected to all of these other things that are playing out in ways that you can't perceive and you'll never see because you'll die before they happen. Um, and for some reason, that experience caused a strong shift in my consciousness where all of a sudden I was like, I don't know, it's like getting a, a breath of fresh air that I've been waiting for for a really long time. And it was like, okay, all of these things that I'm stressed out about, depressed about, feeling like nothing's going to get better, et cetera, it's only because I'm hyper-zoomed in on this period of time I'm in. But where things are going are so far beyond me um, that none of this even really matters that much. And we just have to keep breathing, keep stepping forward, and ensure that were continuing to positively impact all of these connections that I was shown. And then after that, I felt like I was like put back into my body. I started to be able to regain feeling. And then um, the whole experience lasted about 40 minutes, maybe. And then after that, I just purged, just cried, um, just wept for um, a good like 10 minutes, just cried one of the strongest cries I've ever had because it's just been built up for so long. And then after that, it was like I was a new person um, completely. Um, you know, all of that weight of the depression that I was struggling with, um, it wasn't totally gone. Like the issues were still there. Um, Oregon was still burning down. There was still, you know, <laughs> all of this uh, political chaos uh, from the election and people treating people terribly, like all of these terrible things happening. But it felt very, um, 
it just felt like it was all washing over me rather than I was like um, having to actually deal with it all. Um, and that it was just like, this is a moment of time. We're moving into other moments of time. I just focus on making the best decisions I can for me and my family. And we move forward and trust that it's going to go somewhere um, better. And um, that was huge. I mean, that, that effect um, lasted a really long time. Um, you know, it got me through that year, got me through um, in 2021s when we decided that we wanted to move. And, um, you know, I would say I felt pretty good for the, like the next year um, because of that experience. Cause I was able to, I mean, I remember it so clearly, even right now, it's not like it was a weird dream that I can't remember. Like I was very conscious. Everything I experienced was very vivid and I remember it very, very clearly. I can see it in my mind. And because of that, it kind of allows me to go back to that place a little bit. Um, not as strongly because my brain, my monkey mind gets in the way, but, um, you know, it is those kinds of kind of gestalt shifting profound experiences are possible on, on ketamine. Um, but it's, I really do think it takes intention, doing things right, the right dose, closing yourself off to suggestibility and having to wrestle with, you know, thinking about anything. Um, and, and it is different. Like, again, with psilocybin, you, um, have control over your body. So it's, you know, like with ketamine, right. the, the nice thing is like, you're not gonna do something stupid because, um, you can't, it is impossible. Um, at least at the kind of dose I'm talking about, whereas with psilocybin, you, which actually this did happen with ketamine. Um, when they were first researching it, you get this excitability. Some people are, get very ex excitable when they take psilocybin and sometimes they do with ketamine too. Um, and so I, you know, that's, that's one big difference that I think a lot of people have trouble with is like psilocybin has all of this potential in terms of the journeys that can take you on and the traumas and memories and things that can make you confront and you know, all of these different things, but it also, you also remain capable of harming yourself in unintended ways. If you're not knowledgeable, um, you know, I think a lot of those harms can be very well controlled just with a little bit of education. Um, but I, you know, I think that's the disconnect, um, between those two substances that like ketamine is like, okay, yeah, you can get it easily and everything, but you're stuck in place and you can't, you know, people still imagine that if you take psilocybin, you're going to go jump out of a window or something. Um, like that's a real fear that a lot of people still have. Um, and it's going to take a while. I think I feel like that's comfortable with it. Yeah. And I understand that. I think in, I don't know, this is just a, a judgment, I suppose, but I feel like that came kind of from, uh, either extreme circumstances or some sort of reefer oh, yeah. madness for mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Absolutely, I, yeah. I mean, obviously obviously, you need to have safety measures. It's good to have a trip sitter, absolutely. Um, but looking, and, and this is just a personal case, but looking back on all the times I've macro-dosed and micro-dosed both, I have never felt that I have been out of control. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the things I like about psilocybin is I do feel like I have control over my body. Um, I can I can agree with that. Like my my personal experience, how I feel when I take psilocybin is very similar. Like I I still feel very conscious, aware, in control, um, maybe distracted. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's a lot going on in my mind or things, you know, whatever. Right. But I, I agree. My own experience has been, um, that I have not lost control. The only substance that I've psychedelic that I've had that experience with is salvia. Um, yeah, well, of course. Oh my gosh. You'll wake (laughs) up in the front yard with that one. (laughs) Salvia is one that, you know, it's, uh, I always think of it as like, it's a trickster because, um, I don't know, like the effects that it has on the psyche when you actually have like a breakthrough experience. um, It is like that's true dissociation, in my opinion. Like that's like real. Like I have no clue. I have no concept of identity. I have no, you know, I I don't even know what my body's doing right now. Um, It's that's a whole other beast. And I think anyone who has done salvia understands exactly what I'm saying and, and everything, but for anyone that doesn't have that experience, that that can be hard to understand. And, and I think that actually goes a long way, um, to make a really strong point that it's extremely hard to contextualize and understand these substances if you haven't done them, or if you don't at least know someone who has, um, because we use words like dissociate, we have all these boxes, we put experiences in, And for people that don't have those experiences, they start to create associations and equivocations that are not legitimate. Like, you know, you might call salvia and ketamine both dissociatives, but they are extremely different in their personalities. Right. And and like I mentioned, I don't even, unless you're in a really high dose, I don't think of ketamine as a true dissociative in that way. Um, Whereas salvia will make you forget who you are and make you laugh maniacally, crawl on the ground and think you're turning into concrete. I mean, um, there's it's just big differences between these these compounds. And it actually brings us back to another point. You know, with cannabis, there's just cannabis. It's one plant. Yes, <laughs> lots, lots of chemical variety, but yeah. it's one plant. When we start talking about the world of psychedelics, <laughs> We're talking about so many different things with so many different chemical profiles and personalities in terms of their effects. And it's just it's just really important for people to understand that the psychedelics um, space, even though it, it's it can seem similar to the cannabis space, they are really worlds different um, on on many levels. And um, I don't know. Well, even the difference between. LSD even or psilocybin, right. yes. you know, yeah. people will try to relate both of them to be the same. And I'm like, no, it, it, it's not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you, the best, the best, you it, can it's do just is, not the best you can do is uh, sometimes I'll say, okay, if you think of like the, the uh, general experience charted on a graph, you know, um, psilocybin usually comes on relatively strong and dissipates relatively quickly in terms of Within six hours, you're going to be, you know, relatively uh, up and done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas LSD, especially with lemon tech. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and if you make tea, you know, you can you can squish yeah. that, yep. you know, graph um, yeah. even more. And with LSD, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> stretching it 
taking that same graph <laughs> and stretching it and adding yeah. all of these all of these hills and Ups valleys and all the way yeah. across and it's amazing um, that's the only way to compare them because beyond that they are not comparable um in my opinion no. like, their effects are so different <laughs> no. um yeah but yeah like that's the best way when when someone has no clue and don't doesn't have any experience with psilocybin or, or lsd that's how i'll describe it it's like okay imagine that graph and now and stretch it yeah yeah and, um, and 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 realize just when you think everything's done oh that's no, right no, no, no. yeah everything's yeah. and if you're no, a no. and if you're a cannabis user then get ready to um exaggerate those hills and valleys even more because that's uh generally what will happen you're like all right i think i'm good and then you smoke a bowl and you're like oh no we're right back in it now um so it's well yeah, honestly it's, psilocybin does that to me too i've got to yeah. be careful if i'm mm -hmm. on psilocybin what i do is when i when i'm doing a macro dose i do use cannabis on the come up and the come down only because it, mm -hmm. there's for me for most varieties i get this little bit of anxiety on the way up yes and yeah, i get same. a little of yeah. anxiety coming down uh yep. and so i'll use that cannabis just just a couple hits to kind of get through those anxiety stages and but that's all i want to use it for because if i if I mess mm -hmm. up, man, and I take a hit in the wrong spot, you know, you're <laughs> whoop, wait back up yeah, again. You're like, oh, it's an no. arm ramp to the interstate you just tried to yeah. come off of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, so ab absolutely. Careful, I, a... I, I'm the exact same way. I have anxiety on the come up, and uh, cannabis can be really nice in helping you forget that you are even waiting for something, um, which is kind right. of the whole psychological game. It's just like your body knows yeah. that you just threw a big, rock in the pond so to speak and so there's a lot of a <laughs> lot of waves starting to come out and so it's like let's just try to forget well, I think about people it. yeah what happens too is like on psychedelics you get that and i think you described it you get that euphoric soft feeling and then it comes on you know even if it even with lsd they say it takes time but it comes on quick enough to where you're like oh yeah oh, mm -hmm. oh. and you're like oh how far are we going to go? You know, you never know. You're like, how far is this going to go? But really it doesn't. It's just that you get yeah. that anxiety feeling. Oh shit. Did I overdo it? I feel like I do that every time. <laughs> well, and I'm interested if you have this experience. Like for me, I've done psychedelics so much at this point that if I'm even around them very much, I'll start to taste a metallic taste in my mouth. Um, because my body's yeah. getting ready for the experience. Um, I can even, I can even get it in my nose. Yeah, kind of yeah. smell it. Yeah. yeah, there's it's it's really interesting um these sensations and things that you pick up on um and how powerful it can be just that anticipation um or I like I'm not even planning on like having a trip it's just like just handling the material or something and my body's like oh here we go okay time to get the get the boys ready here we go and um <laughs> yeah it's just it's it is really interesting how impactful um those experiences can be. And another concern, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, um, on the Oregon market. How are you feeling about the level of education that the practitioners are, are getting or trying to get, you know, something I've always been worried about as someone who has, I've tripped a lot in my day and have experienced a lot of different things in terms of what can go right and wrong or everything in between. And I have some serious concerns over how ready some of the practitioners are to um, to get into the the work that they're trying to do because 
um, it's one thing to study it, read about it and everything else. But when you're actually with somebody, um, when they're tripping, um, everything you read can go out the window because it can get real weird <laughs> and it can, uh, you know, take you into a lot of places, confront you with things that as a sitter, you may not be prepared for not, not, not to mention the person having the experience. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think practitioners are ready to be guiding people through these experiences? Now I'm going to interview you. <laughs> no, it's, I'm glad you asked that question. It's something I wanted to bring up too. I've done some studying and I've also, you know, I, I know a good friend of mine that has applied for the facilitator license in Oregon. Uh, so I can tell you, I know a few of the rules. I do know that the education is, is extensive. Uh, I mean, you have good. to go to essentially a full, it's a, it's a full semester, if you will, of, if not two semesters of time, if you will, of of education. Um, it's quite expensive. I'll tell you that, you know, you're looking at, it's like going back to community college. You're probably going to spend 10 grand, um, yeah. on average, um, for the service. Uh, uh, I do know this, they, they, it's, it, they teach you all clinical. I, 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 yeah, I the, yeah. the coursework that I've seen is all clinical. It teaches you how to be a nurse basically. Um, yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah. I, I don't see any education on the actual, what my fear is, is I fear that with a lot of macro dosing, even with micro dosing, people get a sense of connection. Yeah. People want a sense of connection. Yep. And there's some boundaries there that are going to be at play mm. that I think people need to yeah. be very careful of as facilitators. Yes. You see absolutely. what I'm saying? The way absolutely. The, the way that can... The way the conditions are, even with psychologists and counselors that you see yes. just to talk to, there's some serious boundaries, let alone being in a situation where the patient is, we're assuming, in a very vulnerable state. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so with that said, when you've got a facilitator that's going through the process 100%, so the first initial counseling, the full session, the last session, I mean, this facilitator is with you holding your hand essentially till yeah. the end which I think is great, but there's the connection, right? You're going to grow this connection with that facilitator. And during your trip, that might extend into areas that I don't know are. Yeah. Well, this is an issue that has come up already in MDMA therapy. Um, you know, there have been accusations of sexual misconduct and things like that. Um, and that can come from both sides, right? Absolutely. 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 The patient. And then it could come from the facilitator too. So yes, absolutely. I mean, in those moments, it's so hard, right? Because as you know, because you've had these experiences, when you're in those moments of pure connection, um, oneness and that sort of thing, you're often mm. not, you're just in a totally different headspace than you're in in your day to day. And yeah. you may do things and may be comfortable with interacting with people in a way that you would not be comfortable with interacting with them outside of, of that state of mind, because once you, you know, I always think of it as like, once I put my world costume back on and have yeah, to, yeah, you know, yeah. start paying attention to all of the different cultural dynamics and all these things, um, you know, there's a, a lot of things could then come up. So this is a very, very big problem. Um, how do we maintain yeah. appropriate boundaries between the facilitator and the client. And um, if 
while it, still it, providing that experience, exactly, right? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I like it's 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 so tricky because it's like I've got to have these boundaries, but I also need to be able to support this feeling and this connection. Um, and it is something that to a degree therapists, you know, deal with regularly, but the the issue is that that sense of connection can be so profound um after a right. six hour trip. Um yeah. That even even outside of just sexual misconduct, let's put that to the side. Don't even think about that. Sure. Just think about issues sure. around where maybe a client starts to obsess over their practitioner because they develop right. such a profound connection with them that is not reciprocated um, and can't be because of the boundaries that have to be in place between the, the clinician and the, the client. Um, I know my wife has been stalked by her clients before, um, just in regular settings of therapy. So I could see this being a real situation where that that is a concern. Um, the sexual misconduct stuff is a concern. I think there's all sorts of um, issues. And then one thing I think about a lot in terms of, you know, who's providing these services and everything is how... How much are they monitoring their language to avoid suggestibility or the introduction of cultural norms that they hold that have no place in a psychedelic session at all? Um, I worry that the training doesn't do enough to help practitioners understand just what that experience is like. Um, and I don't know that there's a way to do it without having the experience. It's um, and I'm not even advocating I that all clinicians have the experience, but I'm just, it's a quandary. Like, how do you communicate what cannot be communicated except through experience? Um, yeah. and you know, I, when I was in college in my undergrad, I was studying philosophy and I, I was actually inspired a lot by my psychedelic experiences in um, how I handled my final series of theses because in philosophy we don't just have like one thesis we work on we actually have like three that we do simultaneously and and present them and everything mine i i ended up getting really interested in the idea of self brainwashing self uh suggestibility um and what the ethical implications and issues are if someone is able to brainwash themselves in an intentional way. And, um, and some people don't like that term brainwash, but that's the phrase I used in my paper. Uh, so that's why I'm saying it. And it is very possible with psychedelics, the way they affect the brain, how vulnerable they make you, how open to suggestion they make you. It is very actually quite easy to brainwash yourself with psychedelics if you're not careful and you don't have proper intention and you don't have proper guidance and that sort of thing. It's also very possible for someone to brainwash you if um, you're right. not aware of these things and the practitioner is either unaware or maybe they're even taking advantage of that suggestibility. I mean, that's how the CIA used to use psychedelics was to introduce I, I was just going to say LSD was studied by yeah. what... Uh, CIA for, for a while there. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. So. And so, you know, those are some of the concerns I have is like, there's some deep philosophical issues that extend beyond just health care and, um, more into, um, 
um, some of it even kind of really even goes beyond psychology and really just into these normative questions like what should we be doing? Um, what should the expectations be? Um, and those are hard, hard questions to answer, especially by someone, like I said, who has never had a psilocybin experience or, you know, any sort of psychedelic experience. It's just, I just know, and, and people may find this weird. Um, I explain it in a a old episode I recorded where I talked about my life, but I started researching psychedelics when I was around 13 years old, primarily because my dad being mentally ill, that's uh, where it ended up leading. I was trying to get him into like maps, uh, funded studies back way back oh, okay. then. Mm-hmm. And, nice. uh, um, I remember as a teenager, how I thought about psychedelics based on reading about them and studying them and studying their pharmacology and all that sort of thing. And then I remember how I felt when I actually did them. And I was like, damn, I was so wrong in how I right. thought this would be or what I thought this would be like. And I've had that experience with almost every psychedelic I've tried. Um, There's just only so much you can glean from reading about it. And that sense of how wrong I was was so profound that it has left an impact on me where I'm like, you know, I'm not saying you can't be a good therapist if you don't do it. I absolutely think you can Um, to be there for someone and provide support and everything. Like, absolutely, you don't have to do psychedelics to do that. But if, if you actually are really trying to understand what that person is experiencing going through and the types of dynamics that are at play um, during that experience, the only way is, is to experience it. And um, so I think it's important. For- I would argue. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Let me. No, well, I just I would say I would argue that you can't get a full therapeutic session without that. I think it's a hindrance. Meaning, yeah. Meaning. I mean, meaning that not not that there's no therapeutic value, right. but if if the doctor or the physician or whoever it is that's responsible for the actual integrate or the actual well both the 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 pre interview the the actual trip and the the after interview I mean mm-hmm. if they don't if if they don't understand the profoundness yeah I feel like it they might take away from the magic of it and turn it into something clinical meaning like there is some profoundness to it there is some call it spiritual call it religious Mm -hmm. you can label it whatever you want but it's something deeper than just a clinical hypothesis right right you know an outcome absolutely and so i hope that the yeah i hope that the people that don't have those experiences doctors physicians nurses facilitators that they don't take away from that yeah in the integration yeah i completely agree you know because because you explained your your whole trip with ketamine, that was profound. That was yeah. meaningful, and there was nothing clinical about it. You know what I mean, right? In terms of your experience, mm-hmm. uh, and if the doctor or nurse or your your counselor that's facilitating or integrating, I, and yeah. they don't understand that, it seems like they'll reduce it down to, well, this is what happens when you have this kind of experience. That's exactly, that's yeah, the reduction. Down. Yeah, they they distill it, reduce yeah. it into something that is a shadow of, of what it actually was. And uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, I think one of the things about psychedelics, as a facilitator, the best thing you can really do is provide the space and support. Um, introducing much else starts to really um, 
contaminate things quite a bit. Now, if some sort of, let's say you have, and it's actually fairly common because people have repressed memories from traumas. Let's say they take uh, psilocybin, all of a sudden they remember, holy shit, I was abused as a kid and I totally forgot um, because my brain just completely repressed it. And now I'm remembering all of these things that happened to me and I'm having to deal with that. Okay, yes, like, yeah, you need to like have some therapy around that. Um, but the therapy doesn't necessarily need to be around the trip. It needs to be around the trauma, if that makes sense, you know? Right. Um, it does. It and, does. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I worry that by trying to almost like dream read or something, you know, it's like, well, let's talk about the trip. Yeah. What could that have been? And what is this? And, oh, yeah, the drug was doing this at that time. And that's why you experienced this. Um, I completely agree that um, ignorance may be better in a lot of cases for a lot of clients in terms mm. of um, a lot of those details. And they should just be allowed to have the space to have the experience because ultimately their brain is going to present to them things that you will not be able to see or tap into. They're going to rely on what they communicate to you. But ultimately, it's a personalized experience. Only the person experiencing it will know what happened and will know, you know what they went through. And, um, yeah, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about suggestibility and being careful with language, not bringing in social norms. Um, yeah, have the real concern that in, like you said, in the integration process that all of a sudden all of these biases will be brought in from the clinician. Um, and that could really reduce the efficacy, um, at times for some people, maybe it'll increase the efficacy. Um, there are some people that like to understand, you know, to have the mystery taken away. My dad is one of those people. He doesn't like the mystery. He preferred to know, um, you know, uh, how is this chemical moving through my body and at what hour did it bind with sure. this? So, you know, but he's a, you know, that's a unique, I get it. unique kind of person. Um, I think for most people, the mystery will, will be beneficial and allowing yeah. them to have their own relationship to that mystery, their own interpretation of that mystery, et cetera. Um, I do believe is part of the therapeutic process to some degree, depending on what type of therapeutic outcome you're looking for. Um, so yeah, I, I share all those concerns for sure. And I think the psychedelic industry as a whole still has a long way to go to make these issues as well-known and appreciated as I think they should be. I think right now there's just such a focus on, can we get it legal? Can we make money on it? Um, can yeah. we create jobs with it? Yep. That um, yep. these kind of like philosophical questions that really impact the person who will be hopefully getting the benefit from it um, to largely be ignored. And that's, that's definitely a problem. So I'm glad we're talking about it. I hope people listening are taking these issues um, seriously and, you know, hopefully it'll lead yeah. to people asking some better questions around how these programs are being set up. What type of support is there? How are these people being trained? What are they being taught? And um, do they have any experience with these compounds? I think that, um, like, if I were going into a session, I would want to know that. And I would not feel comfortable having a session with somebody who had not experienced it before. That's just me personally. Um, but, yeah. but from that opinion... You know, extending that, I, I do believe that patients, clients should um, 
know whether their clinician has that experience and they should be able to request it if that's something they care about um, and something that they value. And then that might be an option. You never know. I mean, that might yeah. be a marketing ploy. Maybe so. Hey, yeah. we've got doctors that, that tripped. Right. Yeah. Uh, they but, actually you know, know what the back, experience is like. <laughs> but back, uh, you know, I assume I haven't done a lot of research on this, but I assume over the millennia of human consumption of psych of natural psychedelics, um, that the shamans, if you will, uh, yeah. I think they all had experience. I think they all integrated. I think that too many people these days, you know, when you say shaman or, yeah, or yeah. you have to use the proper word even nowadays because you use the wrong word and someone's going to get offended. Oh, yeah, there's already someone uh, offended at you right now for talking about shamans. So don't worry. I don't. <laughs> yes, I know. I, there goes five emails right there. <laughs> right, five yeah. emails in the inbox. You piece of crap. Yeah. How dare uh, you appropriate that word? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, I mean, that leads me to the thing of that there's going to be a huge liability for these places, mm -hmm. these facilitators and places. And I can tell you from, yeah. from a limited knowledge that, that they're teaching them a clinical setting. They're teaching them to be a nurse. They're teaching them to literally facilitate, you know, yeah. essentially just let it happen. Um, so I, but you know, I have never done a macro dose at Epic Healing yet. So I, right, I right. really I know. I'd like to, to, you know, yeah. Oh God, I would too, but I'm gonna have to wait till OHP covers. I know, yeah, yeah, I know. Oh man, <laughs> going back to talking about differences between states, man, I miss OHP so so bad. Um, it's uh, Oregon will take care of you, man. Yeah, the yeah the social services in Oregon, I definitely miss those. I couldn't even get my kid on uh, on um, state health insurance here. Like it was a whole big thing because I'm self employed. They denied it and requested all this crap. And by the time we get it done, it's like, well, now I'm just going to do something different. So it, it, yeah. Talking about the, the culture shock from moving from Oregon to Mississippi. Um, that was the one that stood out to me. I was like, man, I miss OHP. It was so easy getting uh, my daughter oh, yeah. so insurance and stuff is one click done. All right. She's taken care of. Uh, well, that, that's the thing. It's like when people bitch about insurance in Oregon, I'm like, you do you not know. know how the state runs? Oh, yeah. Do you I mean, not know how the state runs? Like, I mean, everybody has insurance in Oregon, okay? Yeah, like, there's no need for anyone everybody. in Oregon to be complaining about insurance. Uh, yeah, come, come no. to Mississippi and no. talk to me. Yeah. Um, right, right, especially self-employed. So. Yeah, yeah. When you're self-employed, you might as well just be dirt because, um, like, when I was uh, trying to buy a house out here, I mean, it was the craziest thing. Um because I need 17 years of back taxes. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was like in order for us to trust your income, we've got to have all these years. And I was like, but yeah. those years don't exist. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah, so many obstacles in life. But um, you know, I it doesn't seem to have stopped you, man. I try. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't I, seem to have stopped you. I I had a little dip there for a little while. You know, after I moved, it was hard to make content and everything, but we're, you know, I'm getting through it. Definitely getting my medical card here. Um, now that I'm not feeling like there's a possibility of me going to jail, being back in Mississippi or something, um, which was a genuine concern. I was like, I'm moving back, but like, who knows what they're going to do with the medical program? You know, God. Um, so having that safety net, um, then allowed me to feel comfortable to start diving back into all the same stuff I've been doing, but um, 
yeah, trying to keep at it. You know, it's funny, curious about cannabis. Technically, the podcast got going in 2019. So it's been almost four years. Um, and then I've been teaching those workshops and everything since 2013, 2014. Um, just as to think about we've already it's already been basically a decade of teaching about cannabis and talking about cannabis and doing all these things. It's it's really weird to think I, man, that much I, time has passed. I met you in what, 2015, I think? Yeah, I think so. Right yeah. when it went legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And man, you have changed, brother. Like you were, <laughs> you have so changed. I hope in a good it's, way. It's amazing. I love to see your growth. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I love to see you grow, man. Good. That's- absolutely love you. All the way back from the... The days of Kenavir and Anthony. Oh and man, yeah, dude, was... I'm lugging around, lugging around 25 pounds of gear I didn't need. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those were the days, and it's uh, something I've learned too, man. Those those days, and I, I mentioned this earlier, like experiencing the pre dispensary days all the way to adult use. There is something so unique about the experience we've had living through all of that and being a part of it and participating in it, everything. Um, that as all of these new states are changing their laws and coming online, they're not going through the same sort of um, changes. You know, like that was a long period of time. Um, yeah. And it's it's just, I have a much deeper appreciation for what we've been able to, to learn and experience through all of that. Um, I've learned that our perspective on the cannabis industry is one that um, will likely be valuable long into the future because um, so many of the dynamics that happened at all of these different stages in Oregon's cannabis history are just being repeated by other states and uh, like the lessons yeah. are coming back around and it's like, like I said, you know, going to other states, it's like going back in time. It's like we've been afforded a luxury of seeing the future a little bit in terms of um where things could go, where they're headed. And there are not as many of us out there as you may think there are. Um, I'm realizing that a lot of people that were in the industry are not anymore um, because it's, I know. it's gotten to be how it is. And a lot of the people that are active and dominant in the industry now are relatively fresh. Like they have less than five years experience in the industry and many of them don't even have like a private side of experience of the industry. You know, it's like, okay, professionally, yeah, 2013, but it's like I've been using Canvas since I was 16. So, um, you know, there's experience that goes way back. And um, that's been really sad to watch. Um, it's like the longer the industry goes, it's getting harder and harder for me to find people that have been through what I've been through and have seen a lot of the same things and can understand the perspective that I'm speaking from. Um, and it's just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's just sad. It's like just seeing the, the, the old cannabis industry, it's like changing guards and, um, it's just kind of, kind of a weird time. Well, and even in Oregon, like, you know, like when we first started back in 2015, I would bet 99.9% of everybody that started in cannabis then was old school black market growing for 25 years, gorilla style helicopters, you know, lugging in water. And yeah, I mean, you know, there was some history there. For real. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if I could live in any other state because I'd probably be put in jail. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, this point. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> well, especially with uh, like now that you get to play with mushrooms and everything so easily, you know, I'm really envious of that um, because I mean, I. Like, I guess it doesn't matter so much anymore. When I was younger, I used to grow mushrooms all the time and um, I miss it. I would love to do that again um, and get into doing more interesting work, you, you know, scientifically with them, which I plan on it. You know, it's like a matter of time before things, because technically I could do a little bit of R&D on testing and stuff and not break any laws. And, you know, there's ways to, to get into all of that, but um yeah, I definitely miss that. And I, you know, Oregon is, it's a really unique place. It's, it's a place where um, you have so many people concentrated in one place that are all pursuing freedom over <laughs> sort of from different angles. And that leads to a really interesting series of dynamics because everyone sort of has their own ideas of what freedom means and what they want freedom for or against and everything. But um, you know, in my mind, there's, there's no place like Oregon. Um, I've traveled all over the country and, um, spent, I know people everywhere. And, um, like I said, I still wish I was there every day. Um, so yeah, and I'm no, hoping I'll visit it. later I, like in the I year. Said, so. I just... Hey, well, we need to have lunch then. Yeah. If I, if I'm, or, if I manage or, to get out there, or maybe my goal is to get to Oregon at least once every October. Um, cause that's one of my favorite times to, you know, be there. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to, I, I'm hoping to pull it off this year. Um, assuming the finances and everything worked out, I want to try to at least get out there for a week sometime in October. So if we do, um, absolutely we'll get together and we'll have to do like a, one of our old school, um, in-person That'd interviews be awesome. too. Yeah. That'd be awesome, man. Cause we always have great conversations and yeah. I got a lot to show you too, man. I got a lot. To oh show yeah. You. And I'm um, eager to see it too. I mean, I follow you on uh, social media and everything. I see what you're doing. I'm yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I probably couldn't be in any other state at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think I'm that'll change. That'll change like, soon. Hopefully. I think there's going to be a series of dominoes falling on at least yeah. decriminalizing psilocybin and um, just entheogenic plants and fungi and like i said i think there'll still be resistance on synthetically derived psychedelics but i do think the sure. dominoes are falling um across the country uh, it's just one of those things where people are like oh wait this is illegal uh of course like what the, what the fuck who cares yeah. um well, you know and what's nice just real quick what's nice about like that was nice about cannabis is that now that i am involved I'll just leave it at that involved with the, the psilocybin scene. Um, I've seen how there are many levels of healthy professional individuals mm -hmm. that are at minimum micro dosing. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lots. successfully. Yes. And I, yeah. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about, you know, just your housewives or, or a blue collar worker. I'm talking, I know of just like in cannabis, you know, I know of doctors, I know of lawyers, I know yeah. of nurses, uh, even Mike O'Geeky, he's a nurse for a yeah, hospital yeah. and he, so, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I know all kinds of people from all areas of life that, that are, uh, using him as a tool, uh, with or without cannabis and successfully and professionally and yeah. responsibly. Yes. Yeah. Um, more so now actually, than I'm not ever, even really. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, particularly because of Canada. Um, it, it's kind of interesting, but, um, 
you know, starting what, like 10 years ago or so, um, psilocybin products started to really start um, coming out of Canada into the United States, like really nice formulated psilocybin products. Um, and that's started chipping away at a lot of the stigma because a lot of just regular folks were getting these chocolates and things and using them to microdose. Um, and then it's kind of snowballed from that. I've, I've been actually kind of shocked to see how many people I see posting publicly about their psilocybin use. And I'm like, it is in a lot of places still very illegal. Um, but people are, <laughs> people are yeah. like very open about mm -hmm. it. Um, and seemingly, you know, like no one cares and that's great. I, I want the law to follow that. If no one cares, then make it all legal. Yeah. Like, you know, um, right. but it's a fascinating world for sure. Um, and I hate to, to wrap this up, but I just realized the time I actually have to, uh, get going in the next, uh, couple of minutes here, but, um, this has been a great conversation and I'm really, good. I'm really excited good. to have been able to reconnect and, um, we've talked yeah. about some really important stuff here, so I hope it's been enjoyable we for did. people. It, it will be. It's great. It's awesome. I will keep in touch. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. It's it's just a pleasure, man. It's Likewise, you have yeah. so much to offer the cannabis. Uh, actually, you have a lot to offer the the psychoactive space, and I hope you keep doing it. We appreciate you. I mean, bro, I, I look up to you. You're one of my uh, psychoactive heroes. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate so, the kind words. Right. And yeah, I hope yeah. I can help some people, share some experiences. And um, I'm always learning, always growing right alongside everyone else, too. So let's do it together.